You see, the burial methods chosen by early Christians showed they had two real concerns. One, they wanted to respect the body which was created in and in some way still bore the image of God. And second, they were really concerned that their method of burial, just like their baptism, they'd be symbolically able to identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollinsby. Each week, we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed, and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt, and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Thank you, James. Another episode of Heath in Pursuit. We're on episode number 10. It is good to be with you, and uh, wherever you're listening from, I'm glad you are here. This is actually a last-minute podcast because we were going to have a guest on that uh, had to cancel emergency, and so uh, we pushed her back a couple weeks, and then I decided, hey, I'll do a podcast on death because that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. My hope is that this podcast for everybody is uh, it's informative, it's fun, it's inspiring, it's thought-provoking. I want this to have many purposes. But I think it's important that, I, like, I don't want to waste your time. I know there's many podcasts out there, and so I'm honored that you even listen to this. But um, the other day, I thought I should do one on death. And because a, a while back, I had heard this conversation about burial versus cremation. And it was actually from a tweet that I saw, now that I think about it. And a couple weeks ago, it's there was a story, I'm going to tell you, that really made me go, I should write a podcast about this. And so... I started working on it, and then when the guest today had to back out, I just said, oh, I'll just record this one instead. You know, I live in the Northwest. It's rainy here. It's a rainy time of season here as we're as we're in February. And a couple weeks ago, I was seeing our counselor, and it was a late Thursday night. I'm driving down the hill to get back to Tacoma, which is where I live, and this is a 30-minute drive, and I'm very accustomed to it. But uh, there's a road that runs alongside a river, and it's called River Road because that's what it is. Uh, that's a road next to a river. And it was really foggy out and super rainy. And I could tell as I was driving down River Road, it's like a five or seven mile long stretch that I'm on River Road for. I could tell that off in the distance, something was happening, but I didn't know what because the fog, it's really dark. There's no streetlights on this this part of the road. And I noticed that um, I was like, man, are they filming a movie? What, like, what is going on? Something seems out of place. And so I slow down, and as I get closer to the epicenter of what I was observing, I see a man in all black uh, standing about 15 feet in front of me in the road. So I hit the brakes. Uh, he's got his hand out, like in a stop hand motion, like, hey, stop. And I notice that there is a giant car crash right next to me on the left. And I roll down my window. Hey, what's going on? There's no paramedics yet. So this has literally just happened. And he said, call 911, which I did. The The police showed up about six or seven minutes later. There's a guy five feet from me on the left that I'd never met getting CPR. Uh, and he died on the scene. And I kind of watched it all happen. And so I thought, man, death is really, really sucky. <laughs> and uh, I went back out a couple days later up River Road again, and I saw on the right-hand side that there was a memorial for him by his friends that said, you know, we're going to miss you. And I just thought that this is something that's, that is so common to many of us, and we don't talk about it much, and we don't talk about uh, ways to deal with it. And so I thought, 
the informative piece, I want to talk about death. It's going to be a little dark and it's going to be a little weird at times, but hopefully it's informative and interesting and it's at least thought provoking. And so let's talk about death because it's the one thing that regardless of how or where we were born, the thing that unites people of all cultures is the fact that everyone eventually dies and we're not going to be able to escape that. Uh, So on with the dark and wild episode. I'm going to jack up a bunch of words today because there's cultures and customs, and this is not a topic I typically talk about. And so just bear with me. If you're like a mortician or like a medical examiner, please don't get frustrated because I'm botching up words. Just, you know, let's let's see where this thing goes. This is the President's Commission for the Study of Ethical Problems in Medicine and Biomedical and Behavioral Research from 1981. It says that the difficulty of having a unitary view of death or the death experience can be better appreciated when we we realize that it's problematic to even define what we mean by death. For more than 100 years, the clinical definition referring to the absence of a heartbeat and respiration was the basis on which a person was, you know, called dead. However, as medical technology advanced, uh, it made it possible for vital signs to be sustained by machines. And that led to different modifications in this definition to uh, whole brain death, which refers to death as either the irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions or irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. And so even as technology advances, while death is something that we don't come back from, it, it is fairly interesting that the, the markers move on what constitutes what death actually is. So to complicate matters, there's not even real agreement, even within the medical definition, as to what exactly constitutes death. Um, Or, I would say even for that matter, precisely when death is ascertained to have occurred. So you can't pinpoint it in any specific spot. Either way, here's what happens to the body after death. So 24 to 72 hours after death, the internal organs begin decomposing. Okay, that's what's going to happen to you. Three to five days after death, the body starts to bloat and blood-containing foam will leak from both the mouth and the nose. Eight to ten days after death, the body turns from green to red as the blood decomposes and the organs in the abdomen accumulate gas. Several weeks after death, nails and teeth will fall out, and then about a month after death, the body begins to liquefy. And most of us know about basically two ways of saying goodbye to the dead. Cremations would be one, and burials would be another. Now, in the cremation process, as most of you guys would know, the body of the dead is burned in a very special, like, oven. And most of the body is burnt during the cremation process, leaving just a couple pounds of fragments of bone. Uh, And bodies of either small children and infants often produce very little in the way of ashes, as ashes are composed of bone. And young people have softer bones, and they mostly have cartilage. And often these fragments are processed and uh, they're actually ground up into a fine powder, which has led to cremated remains being called ashes, right? That's where we get that phrase, ashes. And in recent times, uh, cremation has become so popular uh, in the Western world that it's the number way now of, uh, of dealing with bodies. Now we know in burial, bodies get buried into the ground, but here's something that's, that's pretty fascinating. Often, a cemetery lot would be held by two or more persons in common, provided that uh, there's burial space still available. Co-tenants of the burial lot hold it with the right to be buried therein the order in which they die. The consent of the co-owners of that burial plot to the burial of their co-tenant therein is not even necessary. 
So when you buy a burial plot, often what you're doing is buying a grant of exclusive right of burial, which is the right to decide who's buried there for a set period of time. And that's usually only about 25 to 100 years. So it's a lot like like actually buying a lease on a piece of property. And when that lease runs out, you'll be sent a letter to ask whether you'd like to renew or not. And if you decide not to, the person buried in the plot, they're not going to be messed with, but the uh, headstone might be removed and additional burials may take place in the plot. Um, Typically, they'll stack bodies on top of each other, for example. Um, So that's kind of how the burial process uh, works. Most people don't know that you're actually not buying that plot forever. And so um, you're just kind of buying a lease of land in that property and headstone will be gone and you'll probably be forgotten about in the future and that's the way the world works right so um for the first time in american history in 2017 it was a turning point because a majority of americans actually 50.2 percent uh chose cremation rather than burial uh, which was 48.5 percent after their death and the uh, national funeral directors association which would be interesting to attend one of their yearly meetings, expects that the trend will keep shifting from burial towards cremation to continue over the next 20 or so years. And they're projecting the cremation rate will reach about 80% of deaths by 2035. Now, obviously, there's a a far greater flexibility, right, in dealing with remains and cremation as opposed to the traditional burial. Some of the options include uh, scattering the ashes at a place that was loved by the deceased person or Uh, keeping the ashes at home, which I always found to be a really uh, interesting and kind of creepy way of doing things. Uh, But ashes could also be buried underground or in a columbarium. Uh, Another method that's becoming increasingly popular with similar benefits is freeze-drying the corpse. Uh, And around the world, there are some really bizarre uh, ways of dealing with folks who have kicked the bucket. Um, There's burial beads where you can turn the dead into colorful beads. And actually, many people in South Korea, uh, they really would go for this method of compressing the remains of a dead person into like gem-like beads uh, in different colors. And then they're either displayed in the home or worn as jewelry, as remembrance and paying honor to the person who has passed. Uh, There's endocannibalism, which is eating the dead. So uh, this doesn't happen as much anymore. But uh, in the old days... The Melanesians of Papua New Guinea and the Wari people of Brazil would actually eat the dead in order to expel the fear and mystery that surrounds the concept of death. Um, the Yanomani people actually practice this as well. Um, not my preferred method, because I don't think eating the dead expels fear and mystery, but if it makes you feel better, then maybe go for it. Uh, one of the coolest ways that people are now starting to be buried is uh, they become a memorial reef in the ocean. There's actually a company based in the United States called Eternal Reefs. And what they do is they compress remains into this sphere or like this, uh, this reef ball, essentially, that's attached to a reef in the ocean. And what that does is it provides um, a habitat for sea life. It probably leads to some curious fish. Uh, so that's a possibility. If you want to become part of a living reef, you can do that. Uh, there's um, a concept called fama dihana, which is the turning of the bones. So once every seven years, the Malagasy people of Madagascar, they exhume the bodies of their beloved friends and family members. They wrap them in a cloth, and then they dance with these uh, sacks of corpses. 
Rumor has it that it is so incredibly foul-smelling that they often spray each other with wine as they're doing this, and it gives them an opportunity also to tell a story of their of their families and honor the people that have have once been part of that that tribe and have moved on. So it's a storytelling session with wine and corpse sacks. Uh, in Ghana, you can be buried in a fantasy coffin. So people in Ghana like to be buried in something that represents their lives, something that was important to them or that they were passionate about or that they built their career upon. And so these are often like coffins that are shaped like, uh, like a pilot would be buried in a plane or, uh, a businessman would be buried in like a Mercedes-shaped coffin, or a fisherman would be buried in like a fish-shaped coffin. So that's that's in Ghana, if that suits your fancy. There's a Tibetan sky burial, which is to offer the bodies to birds. And for many Buddhists, this is really popular. So what happens is uh, people will cut up the body into pieces, and then they'll leave them up on a hill so they'll like climb a mountain with them and leave these body pieces for the birds to chew on. And um, the reason is that Buddhists see dead bodies as empty vessels and consider these sky burials as an act of charity and compassion for that which is still living. So it's a bit of a sacrifice of, because your body's just a vessel, uh, it's a sacrifice to that which is living to keep the world going forward. Um, in Papua New Guinea, there's finger amputation. So among the Dani people there, the death of a loved one meant that any women and children related to the deceased had to cut off some of their fingers. Uh, this doesn't happen anymore because it's banned, but um, the purpose was it was to drive away spirits. And so they thought that if they would amputate their fingers, then uh, they'd keep these spirits away. Uh, in New Orleans, there's jazz burials. So there's um, New Orleans, if you've not been there, big horn band culture there. That's the heart and pulse of New Orleans. So uh, it's not really a huge surprise that they play music even in death. And so in New Orleans, there's like a funeral procession that's led by a big horn band, and it plays sad tunes at first, but that is followed up later by upbeat jazz and blues numbers, uh, and it's accompanied by ferocious dancing, or so I've been told. The Benguet people of northwestern Philippines blindfold their dead and place them next to the main entrance of the house. And that is about as creepy as hell. And so no thank you. But if you, uh, if you want to go to northwestern Philippines and, and, uh, and see that, you, you'd be able to still. The uh, Tinguian funeral makes people look like they're still alive. So uh, this is in the Philippines. And what they'll do is they'll dress the bodies in their best clothes and they'll sit them on a chair uh, and place a lit cigarette in their lips. So I don't know where people come up with this stuff. It's kind of cool, kind of strange, but, uh, you know, grandma smoking a, a lit cigarette looking like she's still alive might make you feel a bit more at peace with what really happened. Uh, the Cavatino people who live near Manila bury their dead in a hollowed-out tree trunk, uh, and this is something that before the person's death, they actually will choose the tree. And so if you want to be buried in a tree trunk, you get to do that. Uh, the Apoyo, who live in the North Philippines, bury their dead under their kitchen. And I couldn't figure out why, and I wasn't able to do enough research to figure out why, but it seems like one of the weirdest places to throw a body is a place where you're cooking your food and where there's a combination of typically fragrant smells. Um, a new process is the environmental-friendly burial. So in this method, you skip the embalming process and you get biodegradable woven willow caskets and those decompose into the ground. So that's kind of a cool um, 
cool thing you can do. The Zoroastrian vulture funeral is a is is one of the most creative. Um, and so the corpse is washed with bull urine, after which it's visited by a holy dog or a sagdid. It's called. It's then placed atop the Tower of Silence, where it's swiftly devoured by vultures. And uh, the Haida totem pole funeral is the the Haida people of North America had a special ritual for the death of a chief or like a shaman. The body would be crushed to a pulp with clubs and put in a suitcase box. And then the box would be placed in a mortuary totem pole in front of the deceased person's house. An interesting variation of funeral rites involves the symbolisms that are used, especially in the Akan region of Ghana. So there, the funerals are usually so incredibly lavish that it typically will cost about the equivalent of one year's income of the average Gahanian. And what happens is these families will borrow giant sums of money, and then they will uh, receive donations towards a perfect funeral that's measured by extravagance and the number of people in attendance. So it really is like a show-off. And that money is spent on service conductors and transportation and musicians and clothing and coffins and so forth. In Tana Taraha in eastern Indonesia, funerals are a raucous affair that uh, incorporate the whole village. And they can last from, from just a couple of days to weeks long. So families will save up for really long periods of time to raise these resources for a, uh, a lavish funeral. And then a, they'll get this sacrificial water buffalo who will carry the deceased soul to the afterlife. But until that moment, which can take place years after the physical death, the dead relative is referred to simply as um, a person who's sick or one who's even asleep, and they're laid down in special rooms in the family home uh, where they're symbolically fed and they're cared for and taken out, almost like this uh, relative is still living in the house. Um, In the Greek Orthodox tradition, after death, the, the priest says the first prayer and a candle's lit, and this is done for 40 days in a row because it's believed that the soul roams on earth for 40 days as did Christ. And the lighting of the candle is a symbolic uh, act in asking God for forgiveness on behalf of the deceased. In the Orthodox religion, actually, cremation is not permitted because it's believed that we are made from the earth and that we should return to the earth. Um, In the early Christian church, burials were made in this east-west posture with a head at the western end of the grave. This mirrors out uh, the layout of Christian churches, and for much of the same reason, to view the coming of Christ on Judgment Day. In many Christian traditions, ordained clergy are traditionally buried in the opposite orientation, and their coffins are carried likewise. And I think it's really cool because what it symbolizes is that the general resurrection they may rise facing and ready to minister to their people. So they, they, they rise in the resurrection to serve people yet again. On the other hand, Hindus are cremated as they believe burning the body releases the spirit and the flames represent Brahma, the creator. In Judaism, the burial takes place as soon as possible following the death, and pallbearers will carry the casket to the grave, and a family member will throw a handful of earth in the casket with the body. And this is to put the body in close contact with the earth. Jewish law actually says each grave must have a tombstone to remember the deceased. Um, Among some Native American tribes and certain segments of Buddhism too, the dead and the living coexist, and the dead can influence the well-being of the living. So if the dead, these ancestral spirits, are properly appropriated, 
then the likely outcome is a benevolent spirit uh, will protect the interests of the living. And if not accorded the appropriate treatment, the result is an unhappy spirit that may ignore the well-being of the living and uh, even worse, lead it to misery. Death is the final transition of life, and the funeral is often considered as a celebration of a rite of passage for both the deceased and the living. And societies tend to surround death with specific rituals that are aimed at assisting the bereaved through this final life transition. So funeral rites are believed to serve three closely intertwined functions. Uh, When a member of society dies, there becomes a need to realign relationships among the living. The first function of the funeral typically has been to dispose of the body of the deceased. Um, But funerals also serve the psychological and social purpose, which help to justify and explain and regulate the new social relationships that are created as a result of this death. Um, Additionally, the funeral is part of a longer ritual that takes the dead safely out of this world and into the next. So after uh, the funeral rituals are concluded, the immediate family might practice other rituals that enhance the safe passage of the deceased into the next world. Finally, funerals provide this avenue through which the bereaved can deal with their guilt and their grief. Because oftentimes when someone passes, there is ultimate grief and guilt. And I wish I would have done this, or I wish I would have said this, or I wish we could have had this time back, or I wish this could have been restored. And so this funeral can help set this psychologically healthy mourning practice that enables people to act out their grief in the presence of like a support group. And all of this is to say that death is coming for each one of us. And so I don't know if you're any like me. I've had a few deaths of people close to me, but I know many that that have had numerous close deaths to them in their life. And their life seems to just be marked by this familiarity with people they love and care about moving into the next world. And so a lot of us have experience and familiarity with death. And for others, it won't be long until we start that. It's, it's unavoidable. And as someone who has a deep history, though potentially fading at this point, in the evangelical Christian background, I wanted to see about the cremation practices in the Bible and in history and see if that's a acceptable or respectable view for a evangelical to take, or do we, like most people who have been through the Christian faith in the last couple thousand years, is it better to ascribe to a more traditional burial method? When it comes to cremation in the Bible, um, 1 Samuel 31 actually is the uh, first mention of it, where Saul and his sons are burned and then their bones are buried. Um, Verse 11 through 13 of 1 Samuel 31 says that when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shon and came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Now, a couple verses earlier in verse 9, we see that the Philistines had cut off Saul's head and the bodies at this point were probably just destroyed mutilated, decaying, uh, by the time the men of Israel actually showed up on the scene to, to collect the remains. Rodney Decker actually suggests that it was probably considered more honorable to cremate the royal family than attempt to haul the destroyed, stinking, mutilated bodies elsewhere for the typical Jewish burial ceremonies. Um, there are a couple other references to cremation in the Bible, Amos 2 and Amos 6, uh, but none of these references reflect on the normative 
typical funeral practices of God's people. In fact, there's over 200 occasions in the Old Testament where burial is mentioned as a standard way of getting rid of dead bodies. Uh, Cremation comes from Eastern religions that typically would hold the viewpoint that a person's ultimate destiny is to be disintegrated. In the 19th century, there was this massive move from those who would advocate for creation because burial gave a picture of sleep and of a coming resurrection, and that idea was religiously offensive to them. While Christians have historically opposed cremation since the body of every human being was made by God in his image and, and worth respect, uh, there's no explicit condemnation of this practice in Scripture. In many traditions, especially the Eastern ones, the afterlife has never been viewed as the immortality of the soul that's finally liberated from its physical prison. Uh, Rather, Christianity has always viewed the body as essential to full humanity. So the life to come has always been seen as this resurrection of the body and the glorious eternal life. And in fact, the Apostle Paul didn't really even consider the intermediate bodiless state between death and resurrection as ideal. Um, There are no, that I can find, indications from scripture uh, or from secular history or even archaeology that burial practices changed significantly in the early Christian community versus what the longstanding practices of the Jewish people were. Now, because Jesus got rid of the edicts that were binding up Jewish law, burial soon after death remained the normal process. And it was it was really customary to take the body and you would clean the body and you'd wrap it in different grave clothes and then you'd cover it with a shroud and then you would anoint the dead body, the corpse, with perfumes and spices and you would place it in either a tomb or a grave. And in some cases, the body was actually placed in the tomb first and then followed by all the other things. So there's a couple different ways of doing it, but that's typically how death was handled in Jewish law. Now, that's not to say that there were no variations in any of these customs, because we know from from both scripture and historical documents that the body of many individuals, mostly criminals that were executed uh, with no friends or family to bury them, were unceremoniously discarded onto the perpetually burning trash heap outside of Jerusalem in the Valley of Gehenna, or Hinnom. There were a lot of caves within the hills of Palestine, um, but the stony soil made digging a grave really, really difficult, if not impossible, in certain areas. So choosing entombment over burial was often more of a pragmatic matter of convenience rather than any sort of like philosophical or religious preference. Um, There are indicators that the best caves in the area were sometimes purchased ahead of time for the rich to be their burial sites. We see this in Genesis 25. It's in Mark 15 as well. So even though there was an obvious technical difference between burial and entombment, both methods were considered to be acceptable and actually a respectful means of laying a human body to rest. In fact, um, the biblical authors really use these terms interchangeably for the most part. Jesus, as well as the patriarchal fathers and others, were said to be buried, but actually the method of their burial was really entombment. So Christians and others in the first century Rome were commonly buried in the catacombs beneath the city. And so while we can make a technical distinction between burial and entombment, it's a distinction without a bunch of significant difference. Another practice that was really popular um, and became the most widely used practice in the second and third centuries involved the use of uh, ossuaries. 
So sometimes these are like plain and uh, unlabeled uh, boxes, but other times they were really ornate and inscribed, and they were used to store the bones of the dead after decomposition. So um, the way that would work was that typically there would be a determined amount of time after the anniversary of the death of a, of a dead body or an entombed individual, the tomb would be opened and the bones would be placed in the ossuary. And then after that, the tomb would be cleaned out and prepared for the next occupant. And there was a pragmatism to this practice that allowed the limited number of available tombs to be used multiple times. Um, and, and actually, archaeologists and researchers have done a lot of work recently and found that there were significant amount of ossuaries uh, during second and third century in Palestine. Until recent times, Christians generally objected to cremation because it interfered with this idea of the resurrection of a physical body. Today, this opposition is really kind of leaving and it's dissipating and vanquishing among Protestants and Catholics as well. Um, and it's rapidly becoming more and more common to pursue cremation over burial, though Eastern Orthodox churches still mostly actually forbid exhumation. Like Christians today, the early church did have numerous choices in their method of burial, and those choices were made based off a variety of factors from uh, social and religious status to personal preference to affordability to availability even, and these choices were sometimes made by the individuals themselves, as in the case of Abraham in Genesis 25, but other times it was chosen by other people after their death, as in the case of Jesus in John 19. The methods chosen by the early Christians indicate that they had two real concerns. First, they wanted to show honor and respect for the body which was created in and in some way still bearing the image of God. And secondly, they were concerned that in their method of burial, just like in their baptism, they would symbolically identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, their Lord. The attention given to the somewhat elaborate preparations of the body before burial was a lot like it is today, if we're being honest, an acknowledgement of the future bodily resurrection and this eternal union with Jesus Christ that is part of the Christian tradition. And this is something that awaits all believers in Jesus according to orthodoxy. So while the weight of Christian tradition clearly favors burial, the Bible nowhere explicitly condemns cremation. And so as we move out of this into whatever might happen in our lives, maybe it's something to give some thought to. And if nothing else, hopefully you learn some really bizarre and wild burial methods that are practiced and have been practiced around the world. And, uh, Hey, if nothing else, you learned something new today, I hope. Hey, next week we're interviewing Jennifer Martin, who is a Christian and in a polyamorous relationship um, or subscribes to polyamory. And so uh, in my search for kind of not going into this completely ignorantly, I found out that this is a polyamory discussion. People are thinking this is the next big discussion that the American church is going to have to have. And so... Uh, I thought, why not start talking about it now? Because it's going to be important. And the more I talk to friends who are both uh, followers of Jesus and some who don't subscribe to any religion, the more I'm hearing people say, oh yeah, I have no problem with that. Or I think that would be a great way for humanity to live. And so a little bit shocking to me, but I'm excited to see where that conversation goes. We hope to see you next week for that one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, 
please visit heathinpursuit.com.